Welcome to the Steve Has a Chat podcast, where I call someone out of the blue with the record button on and hope to have an unscripted conversation about Microsoft business applications. Let's see how it goes. Enjoy. Hello. Alyssa, Steve Mordew, how are you? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Well, you know why I'm calling, right? <laughs> I have a I have a hunch. Yes, yes. I've got the record button on and I just wanted to see if you had a few minutes to talk about uh, just things. It's been a while since we caught up. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to spend some time and just chat. It has been a little while. So we just came off uh, business application summit, the first uh, you know, pivot over to a virtual conference and at least from the rumors i hear the attendance was kind of off the charts compared to an in-person conference it was off the charts it was our first um, our actually our first microsoft uh virtual um but we we classify events and this is the tier one event so it was our first one that we executed as a first party tier one event in a virtual capacity so uh, we were both nervous and excited. We had over 50,000 people registered. Uh, so it really was, and it's a very different format. Uh, you know, we condensed two and a half days into a half day. And, uh, and but I think I, I would agree. We were very pleased with uh, both the online turnout. And then I think from what I heard from the community, the format worked well. It was a nice mix of, we did a pre-recorded keynote then we had live sessions uh, that were moderated with subject matter experts. And then we were able to do some networking and fun interstitial uh, type activities in between the programming. You know, I would have to think that if I were Microsoft, having done in-person events for so long and the expense of doing those and the, the coordination of putting those together, because it's a production when you guys do those, and then looking at you know, the number of attendees that were able to make it because of schedule or cost because of their getting approval by their employers and and uh, versus now suddenly a virtual event at no cost. I mean, there was no limits to anybody being able to get into that. And while we might lose some of that in-person kind of networking amongst one another, you know, from Microsoft's standpoint, getting the information out to as broad an audience as possible seems like this is a better way to do it. You know, my team and I have talked a lot about that. And I think in the post-COVID-19 world, because we're learning so much about um, virtual events, I think we will we'll end up, in, and no timeline on this, but we'll end up probably in the future in some kind of a hybrid type um, scenario. Because I do think there is always that benefit of face-to-face, -face, uh, being able to network, shake people's hands, you know, see old friends. Uh, so I think that in-person in will never completely go away, but I think we're learning how to do virtual events um, that will complement the in-person. And so I think, you know, and again, this isn't a, an official statement, but I think there will be a world of probably smaller, more intimate events, and then the big scale events will be virtual. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, we have, we've had over 150,000 views of our content from uh, Microsoft Business Application Summit compared to, you know, we do, you know, seven to 10,000 in person. So it's a very different scale. 
Yeah, it really is. When you think about the ability to touch just so many people that way and, and the, the, the expense, I think that, you know, obviously we, we all got kind of thrown into this virtual event uh, motion when we weren't quite ready for it. And our tools weren't quite built for it. And but when ready or not, here we come. And I was, I can't remember the earlier virtual event that you guys did that I, oh, I think it was the launch maybe. Yes, um, we always do the virtual launch yeah. event. Yeah, that we've been and that long. and that one was pretty good, um, you know. But then you're still thinking about as a large scale event, which we have historically done in person. How does that translate in a way digitally, virtually, that it feels as valuable to the to the people? Notwithstanding the fact that we've now got ten times as many people that can see what's there, but that the the event feels as as much like a live in person event. And I think the tools are getting you know, obviously you guys are tweaking the tools for just that kind of experience, like you said, with some of the networking and, and we're, we're kind of figuring it out. But as we get this stuff figured out and these tools for virtual events are, are just, you know, 100% rock solid and exactly the way everybody would want. And I don't know, it seems like the future of live events across not just Microsoft, but industry wide is, is going to be tough. Well, and I think the um, the thing that we're learning is how to do programming, to your point, because like when we did the virtual launch event, it's, you know, our engineering leads and our product marketers, you know, doing um, content and then demos, content and demos. And I think what we learned with the Microsoft Business Application Summit is that how much that programming matters, the back and forth, being able to do moderated forums, because it keeps people engaged. Um, and we do it in much shorter segments, like the virtual launch event is two hours. We were doing, you know, 35 minute segments in the business application summit. And so I, yes. So to your point, I think programming, you know, doing the right programming allows us to have virtual events that are engaging. And then we get the benefit of you know, being able to scale um, to such a degree that we can't do in person. Yeah, obviously time zones will be a challenge for anything like that, because, you know, you're going to have people kind of doing multiple versions of their session at different time slots to be able to capture everybody. And that's, that's a trick. I think one of the things, some of the feedback I heard from some of the folks was that they thought, thought the sessions times might've been a little short because it didn't, oftentimes the presenters were kind of pressed right up to the time limit with their content. And there wasn't much opportunity for question, you know, in those live events, you know, we're just peppering the, the person with questions throughout the whole thing. Yeah, so that would yeah. be an interesting one to, we got that feedback as well, and I think that's right. I think yeah. that's good that we um, we spend a little bit more um, time, and and we're just we're learning as we go. And I sort yeah. of said that you know, so I think that is one thing you will see us is more sort of Q and A time. You know, I think the presentation time was probably the right amount of content, um, but then allowing for more Q and A is important. Yeah, I thought it was nice in the new whatever the platform you guys were displaying all that in that. You know, typically at a live event, I'll walk into a session and five minutes into it, I might decide, you know what, this isn't what I thought and I want to bounce out and go down the hall to another one. And the virtual equivalent of that, to be able to kind of drop out of one and see like below it, here's the other ones that are going on right now and just kind of click a button and bounce from one to another. Um, I, I felt like we we're getting closer to that kind of experience with the with the tooling and stuff now too, which is, which okay. is handy. Good, yeah. I've had that experience. That's great to hear. Yeah, and of course, they're all being recorded, you know, and available immediately or as soon as possible, you know, it's just huge because then, you know, you don't feel like I can remember at live events feeling like there were three different things I wanted to see 
um, but I could only see one, you know, and since they weren't necessarily all recorded, you just had to kind of miss some content. But now, of course, they could all be recorded by default and, you know, no excuse to miss anything uh, today. So I think it's pretty cool. Looking forward to see where that goes. So what are some of the exciting things in your mind, you know, because you, you look at this through a different lens than, than some of the other folks, because you look at it through that marketing lens. And so you would see things differently than maybe, uh, you know, Googs or Philips as, you know, interesting or important. And what are, what are some of the things you think we should all be really paying attention to? Well, I think one of the, there's probably two things. And I think James and I would say the same, same, and um, well, probably on, on both, which is, you know, I think the, um, you know, we have, we've continued to bring some pretty remarkable innovation to the portfolio. And when you see things, products like Dynamics 365 Customer Insights, um, that has been one that's just been phenomenal to see the customer adoption on this. And I don't know if you saw like Chipotle um, was a big customer win, you know, wall-to-wall Salesforce shop uh, that um, is adopting customer insights. Um, we'll announce here um, Walgreens is doing the same. Um, and you know, so the customer data platform and being able to have a 360 degree view of the customer, even in times of crisis is, you know, as people are moving to digital selling and remote service, you know, knowing your customers is even more important. Um, and so, what, you know, it's it's been very exciting to see the innovation that's been built over the you know course of the last couple of years, you know, in market and seeing the customer adoption on that. Uh, and then I think the broader vision of how Dynamics 365 and the Power Platform fits into the Microsoft Cloud, um, you see very large customers like Coca-Cola that are you know, moving their entire IT um, and cloud infrastructure to the Microsoft Cloud that's inclusive of Dynamics 365 and the Power Platform and doing some pretty cool things with it. Uh, you know, Power Platform, just even in the recent environment, being able, we released a set of crisis response uh, templates that have just gone like wildfire throughout um, healthcare organizations, first responders, organizations needing to, um, you know, be able to, you know, get in touch with employees, with volunteers, with those that are on the front lines. Um, so you see you see the direct impact that it can have. And it's it's pretty incredible and pretty inspiring at the same time. I mean, I think we're all pretty amazed at what Citizen Developer has been able to do when given some tools they could actually do things with, which you know, they never had before. And I'm, I'm continuously seeing citizens building apps to solve you know, problems that they have in their department or their area that there never would have been budget approved uh, for a you know partner SI to come in and build something like that or go buy an ISV solution, all these problems that have gone unsolved forever, you know, it seems like suddenly are getting solved, and they're getting solved quickly and easily without great expense. Problems that never would have been solved. They just had no other way they were going to get solved uh, before this. It's been phenomenal to see the change of this of the platform. Frankly, just in the last couple of years, that huge pivot. Uh, towards that citizen has just opened up so much. When you talk about Coca-Cola, I mean, that's a lot of what's driving that there, I'm sure, is you know, mm -hmm. department heads, a line of business people, seeing something that's accessible and fiddling around over a weekend and creating a solution to a problem they've had for years. 
Absolutely. And like we had the Unilever executive team in to meet with Satya and his directs. And it was, you know, they have done this whole movement to empower their frontline workers um, with the power platform to give them the tools to solve problems. And, you know, we, we always say, you know, the, the value of the power platform is putting tools in the hands of those closest to the problem. And Unilever is just an incredible story of, you know, creating a digital factory of the future that is completely um, ground, like from bottoms up. It's from factory, frontline factory workers that are giving input using Power Apps, Power Automate, Power BI to automate you know, manual tasks that would take them way too long to do, to have insights and analytics to the health of the supply chain and the factory line, um, having a you know digital command center that they could access through a Power App. So you see all of this. And then the, the, the great thing about the Unilever story is, you know, they've been you know, really working to empower their frontline workers with these tools. And then as COVID-19 happened, they actually just took that same rapid innovation model and used it to do things like pivot to being able to um, scale up production of ventilators um, because they had a they their if you think about their IT their traditional IT and developer workforce is is everyone it's not just limited to one department or one set of individuals. Yeah, that's still a challenge for power apps. I know, you know, we're in big organizations. We're frequently running up against the wall known as IT that is, you know, resistant to almost anything in a lot of organizations. Sometimes they're very intransigent to get them to think about new things. You know, the, uh, oh, it's, it's escaping me now, the name of the enterprise management tool that you guys released or, or, or templates. Um, uh, at any rate, no, the stuff that uh, was released by the team to help enterprise manage power app growth in their organization. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, that, yeah, yeah. Within, within power apps, absolutely. And that you saw that like Toyota is a great example of that. They, they actually use that enterprise management. So all of they, they've enabled their, their organization, all of their employees to train them, enable them with power apps as the technology. But then they have within the IT department to make sure they can do things like handle confidential, confidential data sharing. Um, they used a set of control mechanisms. Um, with Power Automate and Power Apps. And so this gives the IT department that final sort of go, no go on what gets published. Um, but it, but you still have the empowerment of the citizen developers across the organization. Center of excellence. Yes. That's, that's the term I was thinking of. So center of excellence. Yes. Yeah, I think that was key to, to really having this thing take off because before the center of excellence, I know that uh, there was some some concern with IT about, you know, people are going to go crazy out there with our data. We don't know what's going on. And that that center of excellence toolkit uh, really, uh, you know, should allay a lot of those concerns. It seems like it has. But we still have a couple of challenges in, in the market that I know I hear a lot of partners and, and I struggle with around licensing. And I know licensing is a it's, I mean, it, it's a necessary thing, but uh, man, does it ever get uh, challenging? And it seems like, I guess it's just the, the the downside of having lots of innovation is every new thing that comes out, we need to figure out, okay, now we're going to license this. And we end up, you know, with lots and lots and lots of, of, of licensing conversations with customers trying to figure things out. And 
I don't, I, you know, I, it's one of those things they sit back and say, Microsoft needs to solve that. But then when you think about it, it's not an easy problem to solve, having lots of different models of licensing. Well, we have lots of products. Um, I will say, you know, our design principle is to is on simplicity. And I think we have, you know, if you look at what we've done with Power Apps in particular, you know, we reconstructed the licensing model to be on a per app per user. It used to be, if you remember, kind of based on feature, right? What was Canvas yeah. versus model-driven application development, which is incredibly hard for an organization to figure out. Um, and so we've really worked to try and simplify the licensing, but at the end of the day, we have a lot of products. Uh, and so, you know, in licensing, I always tell our internal teams is licensing, you know, we go for the 80-20 rule. We design for 80% of the scenarios and there's always gonna be the 20, and we actually strive to do 90-10, you know, have, can we hit 90% of the core scenarios? Uh, but there's always going to be very unique scenarios that we can't solve for, which is why we do you know, different custom type deals. Um, but our licensing, you know, our principles are simplicity, customer centric and um, and designed for, you know, as much scale as possible. Yeah, I've kind of started to take the position with other partners that are kind of complaining about the old days, you know, when we only had like three licenses to sell. And now there's, you know, uh, maybe a hundred different or more uh, SKUs out there that this is just a new part of your practice. I mean, this is uh, this is something that you need to be proficient in and competent in, just like anything else that you're doing. And that is how to help a customer navigate the licensing to make sure they're they're not over licensed or under licensed, that they're using licenses the right way. It's a whole it's just a whole new motion that we didn't have to worry about before that. You're just going to need to learn and understand. I mean, have, have have somebody on your staff that understands the licensing or can reach out and get answers because uh, it's part of the business now. It's just part of the business model. I think the worst thing that happens is a partner just gets lazy. And we saw this, frankly, we saw this even with Microsoft sellers, just go in and sell the enterprise plan to everybody. You know, oh, I, but, yeah, when I started three years ago, we sold two things. That was it. We sold yeah. customer engagement plan and the finance and operations plan. We had yep. two things that we, you know, there was maybe six standalone SKUs under those two things, um, but everyone just sold the plan. And so, yeah, going from, you know, two to, you know, a number significantly higher than that, I do, I do empathize, you know, I do have empathy for it. it's been a, we've ramped and changed a lot in three years, but I, you know, I think we are at a place right now where um, we think we have the right model for how we bring new products in and we're trying to, you know, drive for consistency now. So we don't have a unique pricing. I had this meeting with my team yesterday. We don't want to have, you know, three different types of pricing models for the insights line. We want to have one. And so that's, you know, we're trying to to now strive for consistency across the different product lines. But yeah, you're right. I mean, going from two to a hundred is a, is a leap. Yeah. And, and ditching the plan, I think was great because, you know, not just Microsoft sellers, but, uh, you know, uh, partners and SIs. That was just it. It didn't require any thinking about what kind of license a customer needs. Just put everybody on the plan. But that wasn't in the customer's best interest. You know, they're paying for all this functionality that this particular user doesn't need. And just because somebody didn't want to go to the effort of figuring out, you know what, that 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 user could probably get by with, you know, some some lesser license or some other license or something like that. And it's forcing us to have to do more work to figure it out. But I think the winner at the end of the at the end of the day is the customer, 
it's just not overpaying. Overpaying doesn't help any of us because if they're if they're over purchasing, then they end up churning because they don't see the value. So we want to put them on the right skew that gives them the right level of value, and then they won't churn. So no, I think it's definitely important. Yeah, I mean, that is such a huge thing. Like when I say the principles are simplicity, customer centricity, and scale, like having a plan where you're, I, I mean, I don't know, Steve, if you've ever met a human being that's a marketer, a salesperson, a customer service person, a field service person, all in one, um, but I haven't yet. And that'd be a superhuman, I think. And But that's how we sold. We sold a per user license on with five different job descriptions against it. Yep, yep, yep. Well, and it's interesting because it's also changed the landscape of the partner community because as you guys launch new products, these are new skill sets. Right. And almost, almost each one of these is deep enough that, I mean, you, you, with the exception of maybe the largest partners out there, you're just not going to find one that has a skill set across all of these different things. You know, AI on the insight side and, and development of power apps and canvas apps and flow. There's just so many different pieces that, that we really as partners are having to look at how we how we build our organizations differently. I need I need a power automate expert. I need an expert in this, I need an expert in that and the other thing. Whereas before, you know, everybody was an expert in everything. Right. Now there's that's right. a, now there's just too much. Yeah, so. now you have to, yeah, we have to have a little bit, it's gotta be deeper, um, deeper levels of expertise. Absolutely. So one of the things that I'll go. It's not not negative. I'm not going to go negative on you, but one of the things that has concerned me, and and I still see confusion in the marketplace, is about power apps. What I call power apps versus power apps. Oh, interesting. Say more. <laughs> well, you know, we had power power apps kind of started out of the Office 365 side with Canvas, mostly on SharePoint, embedded in the Office 365 licensing. You know, all these enterprise customers using power apps. And then Power Apps also became a name used for something that technically was completely different, right? Model-driven Power Apps. And there still is confusion, consistent confusion among partners also, but mainly among customers about the difference between these two things that have the same name. I know we've talked about converging them, and there is some convergence going on, but not at the license level, right? That, that Office 365 that customer who thinks they have Power Apps licensing because they have Office 365 can't, you know, they can't build a model-driven app on CDS. That's that's a different Power Apps license. And how can we? How do you think we can make that story clearer uh, to to end customers that Power Apps? There's two things called Power Apps essentially. Well, I think um, you are. We're a little early on this podcast because we'll we'll provide some clarity in July to the market. Um, but what I would say is today, what is seeded in Office um, is exactly what you're talking about, which is Power Apps, the maker, um, but it does not have the common data service um, underneath it. And so the, it's the it's it's the effectively the head of Power Apps without the. Um, back engine, um, CDS back engine on that. And so you have a lot of people that are using Power Apps, but their their data source is SharePoint lists. Um, we are looking to, uh, we'll release in July, you know, what we are doing to make that a more um, seamless story. And I think you'll be pretty excited, but we're just a little early for me to talk about it. So Understood. We'll, well, good good to hear there's something so thinking coming, about it. And yeah. it's coming very soon. You know, I, I, I don't, 
obviously I come from the CRM world, so I'm a CDS guy and I think model driven, but I don't have anything against or any problem with Canvas apps on SharePoint list. I think there's tons of scenarios where that makes perfect sense, but there's tons of scenarios where the customer would be infinitely better off uh, having built that on top of the common data service than on top of SharePoint. And, uh, yeah, right now, I think there's a lot of customers out there that think they're using Power Apps, think they, I mean, they, they don't have any reason to think that they're not using all of Power Apps when they're just building on top of SharePoint lists and, and making them, you know, kind of making some things much more difficult or much less effective than they could be and not realizing that, hey, there's a whole other side here that is way more powerful depending on what it is you're trying to do that you should be looking at. And I, I continuously find myself having that customer conversation where, oh, we already have Power Apps. We already know all about Power Apps. And then, you know, pulling up a demo of a model-driven app and I'm like, what's that? <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a Power App, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah. looking, for, look, yeah, looking forward to the clarity. <laughs> looking forward to the clarity in July. Well, and um, it's not, not negative. I think that know that, you know, your feedback and the, you know, the MVP community, our partner community, the feedback that you guys give us is what allows us to be able to learn and adjust. It's the, and that's what we're doing. Um, and so you'll, I think you'll be uh, pleased in July. So one of the other customer segments that, that we'd focused on uh, for years and is still an important segment to us is that SMB customer. And I go back and forth from feeling like Microsoft is very concerned about that customer to Microsoft is not very concerned about that customer. Uh, almost weekly, I see, I see motions that seem like they're helping and then motions that, you know, we've got such a revolving door with some of the folks that have looked at SMB. What, how, how do you feel about that SMB customer and how, how we should be attacking that customer base? Well, it's a it's an incredibly important customer base for us, um, and I think that you know we we have a model in which we have a workforce. Um, it's sort of there's sort of two in my mind. There's sort of two discrete workforces um, that work with our SMB customers. So we have a digital um, sales team um, that allows for both inbound and outbound. Um, the triaging of those customers. And then, you know, as you know, Steve, we spend a lot of time uh, making sure that our partner workforce has the right incentives, offers, skills um, to be able to service that community as well. And so I think those are kind of, those are the two facets in which, you know, we deploy um, against our SMB community. And we've seen some really you know, phenomenal customer wins um, that are in the SMB space. And so we want to make sure we've got the technology and the right, you know, right resources for that customer base. But there is a very, very high commitment um, through our partner channel and through our telesales team to, to service that customer segment base. And, you know, and I think that's in our world, it's we say SMB, but it's just there's managed and unmanaged, really, because there's some very very large customers that you know we would classify historically as SMB, which I've always had a little bit of heartburn about because yeah. they're not business. They're a big business. They're just not managed under our management. So, um, well, you know, I, you've, you've got a whole rack of levers. I'm going to have to wrap here in a second. I had speaking of customers, oh. a customer meeting that I need to attend to. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, I appreciate the time and look forward to uh, catching up with you again soon and uh, maybe uh, maybe seeing you again in person some point in the future. Uh, who knows when that'll be? Yeah, we don't know when, but definitely. So thank you, Steve. Right. Thank you for everything. Yeah, thank you very much for the call. Bye. Absolutely. Bye.